Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the podcast for culture makers and culture shapers, and that means all of us, all of you, whatever we do, whether we realize it or not, our every action is contributing to the shape of society. Here at the podcast, we want to help you think about shaping culture in a God-honoring direction. This is episode 18 of season two, and I'm pumped to have Nancy Piercy as my guest today. A lot of you probably know Nancy. She's professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Uh, she studied under Francis Schaeffer at Labrie Fellowship in Switzerland. Most recently, she's the author of the book Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. On today's show, we talk about the worldview that lies at the root of modern social issues like abortion and assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, and the hookup culture. And Nancy talks about the ideology known as personhood theory that's taken place in modern thinking and how personhood theory has driven a wedge between the body and the true self and how Christians can understand and respond to this. One more announcement. Nancy Piercy is actually going to be here with us June 1st for the Mission of God conference at the EICC Center. This is a conference for everybody, and Nancy's going to be talking about sexuality, art, apologetics, and God and what it means to be human. I really hope that you can come. Visit EzraInstitute.ca for more information about the Mission of God conference coming up June 1st. Well, Professor Nancy Piercy, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So uh, your most recent book is a book called Love Thy Body, and you're, you're addressing a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, social, the modern social phenomena that, uh, that we're experiencing in the West. Uh, specifically, uh, you're talking about abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, and the hookup culture. Um, now, really, like any any one of these issues is worth some in-depth consideration. But you've got in love thy body. You've got an approach that gets to the heart of all of them. Um, can you say more about this approach? Uh, explain what these issues have in common that uh, that they're able to be to be analyzed in terms of, of a common denominator? Right. So in Love Thy Body, uh, what's kind of unique about my approach is that I do show that there's a common underlying worldview that connects them all. And that makes it so much easier for us to address because I know if you're like me, you've probably tried to uh, memorize and master different arguments for every different issue that we face today. And in fact, there's a common underlying worldview and the secular ethic is actually based on a worldview that denigrates the body, that denigrates our biological being as humans, or our biological identity as male and female. And I show that the Christian view, by contrast, actually has a very high view of the body. Now, the Christian ethic is based on a uh, on the high value and dignity of the body. You know, it's easier if I just jump in with an example. Perfect. So why don't I uh, start with abortion? Most people don't realize that professional bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. Uh, the evidence from science and DNA genetics is just too strong to deny it. But what these bioethicists are saying is that it, the fetus is human at one point, but it doesn't become a person until later. And as long as it's human, it does not qualify for legal protection. The fetus has to earn the right to life become, by becoming a person. 
And that's usually defined in terms of mental abilities, like a certain level of uh, self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. But notice what the implication there is. What these bioethicists are saying is that the fetus, as long as it is biologically human, it's still just a disposable piece of matter. It, it can be killed for any mm -hmm. reason or for no reason. Mm -hmm. It can be used for research and experiments, tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts like Planned Parenthood does and then tossed out with the other medical waste. So in other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And this is actually called personhood theory. And of course, it's very dangerous because if rights do not depend simply and solely on being human, then you and I and all the rest of us are at risk. Mm -hmm. Human rights need to depend on sheer on the sheer fact of our being members of the human race. So this would be an example of how, uh, in the issue of abortion, it's, uh, the secular position actually uh, rests on a very low view of human life and puts all our value in our mental qualities. And it's a very divided, uh, dualistic, fragmented view of the human person. And the Christian ethic depends on the idea that the human being is an integrated unity right from the beginning, that you can't divide out body from person, that the human, human beings are integrated wholes right from the beginning. So we actually have a very holistic view of the human person, which is, is much more humane and that then forms the basis for human rights as well. Right, right. Yeah, it's it sounds like if you can't uh, if you can't base human rights on just the simple fact of being human and that sort of first level membership in the in the human species, then it's there's there's no other objective standard. It, it, it's all anything else is arbitrary. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, if you read the secular bioethicists, um, they all place personhood at a different at a different place. In other words, they define they define when does a person start, uh, depending on their own private views, because there's no objective basis. And so you'll find some bioethicists will say the the fetus becomes a person sometime before birth, and right. others who will say no, it happens after birth. And uh, Peter Singer, who's an ethicist at Princeton University, says. Even at three years of age, it's still a gray area. That's, That's right. his term. Uh, whether whether, this, whether the toddler is a, a fully a person or not, and so when obviously when these arbitrary views get enacted in law, that means somebody's private views, personal preferences, are being imposed on all the rest of us, which is kind of ironic because. Christians are often accused of imposing their private views That's on right. everyone else. And in, in fact, what's happening with abortion is that you know, somebody else's private views, arbitrary definition of personhood, is being imposed on the entire nation. Be, uh, before, before moving on to, uh, to some of the more, more, more nitty-gritty nitty of, uh, of the stuff in the book, uh, you, you brought up the secular worldview that, uh, that each of these issues re sort of rests on and is in, is in the background of all of them. Uh, before we move on, would you just uh, explain how, how do you define secularism um, and how did this become, how did this come to be the prevailing worldview in the West? 
Well, you know, I'm dealing with a particular aspect of secularism because it's, it's, it's very broad. And so when we deal with these particular moral issues, we are dealing primarily with the secular view of the body because they all have to do with how we treat the human body. And, and uh, again, it's easiest if uh, you said you don't want to get into the nitty-gritty yet, and yet it is easiest if we can uh, tie it to specific example. Um, well, as long as we're on abortion, euthanasia is related, right, because it's the same argument in reverse. It's also driven by personhood theory. It says that if you're mentally disabled, if you lose a certain level of cortical functioning, mm-hmm. then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. You know, the, the high-profile case that everyone still remembers is Terry Schiavo. Yes. And the bioethicists were, were arguing that she was not a person, although she was obviously still human. So at that point, many bioethicists say you are only a body. That's an exact phrase that they use. You are only a body. You can be unplugged, your treatment withheld, your food and water discontinued, your organs harvested. So again, being human is no longer enough to qualify for human rights. I was uh, once invited to appear on NPR in San Francisco, and I thought, well, this could be a challenging audience. Yeah. And it turned out it was, because as soon as they started asking me questions, I was promptly disinvited, uh, because their first question had to do with abortion and euthanasia. And I said, the case, the secular view in these cases is exclusive. It says some people don't measure up. They don't make the cut. They don't qualify for the status of personhood. And I said it's the pro-life position that is inclusive. If you're a member of the human race, you're in. You count. That's right. Every human is a person. And so, uh, by the way, they had no answer to that, so I I kept going, and I said the uh, secular view is fragmented. It rests on a divided view of the human person because it implies that the the body and the person can be separated out, and the body itself has no intrinsic dignity or value. I said the, the pro-life view is, is holistic. It says you can't separate body and person, and that the body itself, therefore, shares in the dignity and value of the whole human being. And uh, I, I was, in, in essence, I was using the liberal buzzwords. That's right, like, um, yeah. Inclusive, holistic to show that the Christian view actually fits the best ideals of liberalism better than any secular ethic does. Yeah, that uh, that reminds me. Uh, one of the things that uh, that you mention in the book is that uh, this the the narrative or this the script has has flipped from a generation ago, and that it's now it's now the pro life side, whether it's whether it's abortion or euthanasia, like beginning of life or end of life issues. It's the pro-life uh, side who are who are um, bringing bringing the science, and that exactly. uh, the uh, the anti the uh, the pro-abortion side are they're they're putting this up as as a moral issue. Well, exactly, science is on our side in this. Science clearly shows that the human the the human embryo is a fully developed is a full individual from the start. There's nothing that gets added to it that turns it from a mere physical thing into, you know, gives it the metaphysical status of a person. You know, this is a huge transformation. 
and yet science cannot show any stage at which there is any kind of a transformation that 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 human uh, fetal development is c completely continuous from the beginning. So science is on our side in this, and it's fascinating to watch uh, a pro-abortion ethicists and feminists and others sort of backtrack these days and say, well, well, we can't really base this on science, you know. Like you said, we have we have to have moral reasoning that's uh, separate from science now, and and we need to take advantage of that and really turn the tables and, and show that science is really on the side of the Christian ethic these days. Right, right, and it's uh, it's really it's really funny um, because it it seems like in in most other areas of life, I mean, whether we're talking about when we're talking about gardening or farming or you know sports or something like. We're we're often content to uh, to deal with reality as it presents itself to us. Um, we don't uh, you know we don't in, I don't insist that that what looks like a carrot is actually broccoli. Um, but uh, this this is different when it when it comes to our own bodies. We we feel like we have we have a right we have a uh, an autonomy to uh, to separate. Our, our identity from from the rea the created reality that we're living with. Yes, and that's most obvious if we move on to the other issues like transgenderism, um, the the dehumanizing view of the body, the separation between body and person is even easier to see there because transgender activists argue explicitly that gender has nothing to do with biological sex. A BBC documentary says that the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body, at war with your body. So, And by the way, in that war, it's the mind that wins, uh, right? What counts is your feelings, your sense of, of personal identity, your desires. So that kids down to kindergarten today are being taught that their body tells them nothing about who they are. It's not part of their authentic self. And what Christians should be answering is, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? Mm -hmm. I recently read an interview um, with a 14-year-old girl, and she had actually lived for three years as a trans boy from age 11 before she detransitioned and reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy, to learn to love your body. Right, and the, the book right. came out actually after, I mean, the interview came out after my book, Love Thy Body, had gone to print. Oh. But it would have been a great quote yeah, for a book titled Love Thy Body. You, you mentioned that uh, that one of the Christians, Christians should not be, like, should just not be, not be tolerating this, not be, not be willing to, not entertaining this kind of, this kind of insane, insane duality, or try this artificial separation. Um, what uh, sp speaking to Christians? What uh, what would you what would you say? What's what's the strategy? What's the uh, what's the response? Right. So, say you're a parent, and your kid says, uh, your your son says, "I feel like a girl," or your daughter says, "I feel like a boy." Um, first of all, you can help them think through that there are probably absorbing uh, this idea from the secular world. <laughs> I spoke at a Christian high school recently, and I have to tell you, during the Q&A, the questions, I, I would have sworn I was in a secular environment because the questions from these Christian students at a conservative Christian high school 
their questions all were straight from their secular script. They were just parroting what they'd heard in the secular world. So we need to understand that our young people are out there absorbing the secular ideas. So first we have to argue defensively, help them to see that the very, the very notion of transgenderism is hugely disrespectful to the body. I like to read uh, what the academics are saying because that tends to filter down uh, to ordinary people. And so I did read a book by a Princeton University professor defending transgenderism. And ironically, in the midst of defending it, she said, uh, she admitted that transgenderism involves self-division, disconnect, self-alienation, self-estrangement. Oh, wow. In those words, eh? I know, I know. And then she literally said, your physical body tells you nothing. It is not part of your authentic self. So we can help our young people recognize, first of all, that they are being drawn in by a view that's uh, very negative in its view of the body. And then secondly, um, on a practical level, um, Love Thy Body, my book, has lots and lots of personal stories. Yes. And one of my favorite is the story that opens the chapter on transgenderism, and it's about a young boy who I name, I call him Brandon, mm-hmm. who was clearly gender dysphoric from a very young age. Before he was even walking, his babysitter was saying to his mom, he's too good to be a boy. Right, Meaning yeah, I remember that. Quiet and compliant and sweet-natured, and the things that we stereotypically think of as, as uh, more feminine. And when, his, and, uh, when he was in preschool, when his mother came to pick him up, invariably he was playing with the little girls, not with the little boys. And already in elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping, weeping because it's a very painful experience, and saying, I don't fit with the boys. I think like a girl. I'm interested in the things the girls are interested in. God should have made me a girl. And then uh, by, by age 14, he was scouring the Internet for information on sex change therapy. So what did, he, what did his parents do? Mm-hmm. First of all, they affirmed him and loved him for who he was. I had a gay friend in, in college uh, who said, my, I was always interested in art and music, and my dad was constantly trying to toughen me up by pushing me into football and other more stereotypically masculine things. Mm-hmm. Well, Brandon's parents did not do that. They said, we love you just the way you are. And they took him through personality tests like the Myers-Briggs personality test and okay. said, look, it's okay for a boy to be on the one end of the spectrum you know, of, of sensitive, gentle, emotional, and you're still a boy. Just like for a girl, it's possible to be on the assertive, take-charge side and still be totally a girl, totally feminine. And so they told him, look, it's okay. It's just it's a spectrum of personalities, and you're fine. God has probably called you to one of the caring professions, like a psychologist or counselor. Um, so they, um, they kept telling him, it's okay for you not to fit the stereotypes. And I have to tell you, uh, churches need to figure this out, too, because Brandon's most difficult experiences were in church. He felt like the stereotypes were stronger there than anywhere else. And so the church needs to really think through how do we deal with our uh, gender nonconforming kids. There's nothing wrong with being gender nonconforming, uh, to just be a little bit out of the norm. It's, like I said, it's possible that God has called them and gifted them for a special position. 
uh, so this is on a practical level. We need to learn how to affirm and support and love our gender nonconforming kids. Because I tell you, the social science research says that the most reliable correlate with people who end up identifying as homosexual or transgender, as, or transgender is gender nonconforming behavior in childhood. That's the most reliable correlate. So we need to be focusing on our gender nonconforming kids and making sure they feel loved and accepted and supported just for who they are because they are going to be targeted by the secular world. If Brandon had been at a public school, I guarantee you he would have been transgender. He would have identified as transgender. His mother knew that when he was a young kid. She knew <laughs> that he was going to be sucked into transgenderism if she did not work with him. So, so again, we need to realize our kids are under tremendous pressure to identify as, as at least non-binary, right. if not gay or trans. Uh, we need to be very proactive in, in loving them for who they are. And has has this has this pressure increased in uh, in recent recent decades? Like has the, has uh, the rise of technology, uh, the uh, the accessibility to more information, more stories, more more uh, more I guess manifestations of this worldview has this has this resulted in a in a concomitant rise in in instances of uh, of gender dysphoria? Absolutely, totally. There was a um, study done by a Brown University professor on this very subject, and it was immediately controversial. Mm. And, uh, and Brown University even pulled it under, under pressure from transgender activists. But what she did is she uh, uh, interviewed parents of kids who'd gone transgender, and um, particularly those, and particularly particularly the ones that were not did not have any signs of gender dysphoria when they were young. You know, where it's more, like I said earlier, it's more understandable when they have gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Gen, you know, it, is a gen, it is a genuine condition. But a lot of kids today are manifesting it for the first time as, adult, as young, um, young adults, teenagers, maybe adolescents. Kids who are totally gender conforming suddenly, you know, quote unquote, discover that they are trans and for the majority of them, it's after spending a lot of time on the Internet. And, and another fascinating quote, piece of uh, social science research is that uh, a large percentage of them are autistic uh, or have been diagnosed with other uh, psychological issues. Mm -hmm. Diagnosed, a large number have actually been diagnosed. I mean, a lot of students, a lot of young people suffer from depression and other issues without ever being diagnosed. So these are, these are young people who have reached the level where their parents took them in and they were getting counseling and they were actually diagnosed with various psychological issues, the most common being autism. And most of the kids who are, um, who are they're actually, there's actually a name for it. They call it rapid onset gender dysphoria because it's happening suddenly when the kids are old enough to be spending a lot of time on the Internet, right. oddly enough. Yeah. And so it's clearly a case of social contagion. They're picking it up. Uh, kids who already are having some sort of social and psychological issues are easily pick up transgenderism from the from the internet, and 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 like I said, there's even been a study showing that. So you're absolutely right. I, the, the pressure is incredibly intense now. So, 
if we uh, if we look at it sort of like as as Christians, if we look at it um, now sort of at a uh, at the, at the cultural level, um, zoom out a little bit. Uh, one one thing that I noticed that I just I hope that you can comment on a bit is that uh, early in the book you write you write regarding Paul's letter to the Philippians that uh, he's describing them as citizens of heaven, and uh, and what what's contained in that is the calling for us to permeate the world uh, with a heavenly culture with the culture of heaven to live as though uh, to live the reality that that we are. You know, filled with the Holy Spirit, um, but then uh, a little bit uh, a little bit later, you also write that uh, the goal the goal is not to win a culture war, not to impose our views on others, uh, but to love our neighbor, which means working for our neighbor's good. And I mean, both both of those things sound awesome, but I just wonder if you can explain how to hold those two mandates in balance. Right, um, as you may know, I used to work for Prison Fellowship. Right. And we used to lobby for various laws, and uh, some of them were well, we we would lobby for offenders' rights, and we would lobby for victims' rights. And uh, for victims' rights, for example, we would lobby for restitution to victims of crime. And people would often say, "Well, that's pretty cool. Where'd you get that idea?" <laughs> and we'd say, "You got a Bible at yeah, home? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you d- dust it off, <laughs> read Leviticus." And the point is that as Christians, we do argue in the public square for policies that we think are for the public good. And we're not imposing our personal private views. We are arguing for those policies that we think are for the public good. And so it's motivated ultimately by love of neighbor. You know, we, want, we want to love our neighbor as ourselves partly by having a uh, healthy policies that help promote um, a healthy, thriving civilization. And in the same way, when we talk about these uh, moral issues, um, our views are informed by our Christianity, but what we are ultimately arguing for is what's for the public good. And I think the difficulty here is even Christians have lost the notion that Christianity has a, has a high view of the body. Right. Um, yeah. one, of my, one of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught, spirit good, body bad. And when I use that in my lectures, invariably, you know, the whole audience starts nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm nodding my head here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And the reason for that is that uh, Christians have lost touch with their own heritage. The early Christian church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that devalued the material world, just like modern secularism does, though for different reasons. The early church was facing philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism that treated this world as a realm of evil and corruption. In fact, Gnosticism taught that it was a low-level deity, an evil god, who created this world, um, and that the goal of salvation was to escape the body. They They called the body the prison house of the soul, and the soul should escape the body. Um, and that's how they define salvation. So in this historical context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary. It taught that the material world was created by the supreme deity, a good God, and therefore it is intrinsically good. It has fallen today, but it is intrinsically good. But at the time, Christianity's greatest scandal 
was its claim that the supreme deity had entered into the realm of matter and taken on a body. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the body, right, as uh, Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. Mm-hmm. But what did he do then? <laughs> he came back yeah. in a physical body to the, to the ancient Greeks. This was not spiritual progress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I love what you wrote uh, in, in the book that uh, don't, don't try to defend Christianity by saying it's traditional. Christianity is always like move forward by standing, standing against the established traditions. Yes, and you, you, it's really inspiring to read the early church just because they did have to stand so much against the culture of their day. And, and, uh, and, and our eschatology too, right? That at the end of time, God is not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake the first time. He's going to renew it and restore it and mm-hmm. create a new heavens and a new earth. So the Apostles' Creed from the beginning affirms the resurrection of the body. Christians need to realize this is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There is nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. So we don't have to be defensive. We can go out confident that we have a very positive view to help to to inspire people with, a positive, life-affirming, holistic ethic that's based on a very high view of the human person. We should be so excited about the beauty of the of the Christian worldview that we can't help telling people about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. How? Uh, but how? How do we get here? How did the church get back to this this sort of Platonic understanding of or this Platonic eschatology that uh, we're just uh, we're just sitting around waiting to escape this uh, this earthly prison? Right. So a lot of it is that. Um, and people have this notion that uh, Christianity is just against fun and pleasure and so on. But the, the source of that view is not scripture. It's because even though the Christian church stood against Platonism and Gnosticism, that was the intellectual environment of their day. And they did pick up a lot of that, uh, the, a lot of the Platonism and Gnosticism. And that's why even today there are churches that teach a kind of asceticism, right? That, that holiness means depriving the body, that depriving yourself of, of pleasure and fun. And uh, when the mid, in the Middle Ages, it was even things like uh, poverty and rejection of sex and marriage and family and all kinds of asceticism. So uh, it is easy for people even today to think that the body is shameful or worthless or they, and another symptom of it is that they treat sexual sin as somehow more wicked, more evil than the other sins. Uh, and they tend to hold an escapist view of salvation, right? Mm-hmm. As though Jesus died just to whisk us away to heaven and that we're going to be you know, disembodied spirits, you know, all through eternity. And that's just not what the, what the Bible teaches. It does teach that the ultimate goal is not to be separated from our body in heaven, the ultimate goal is a new heaven and a new earth, and that we will live on that new earth in our restored body. You and I will be there. So what I found is um, when, when my book, Love Thy Body, first came out, I was kind of surprised by the customer reviews on Amazon mm-hmm. and Facebook because they, 
the most common response was something like this. I picked up your book to get handy answers to current issues, but what I'm finding is it's transforming me. I didn't realize how much I'd absorbed that sacred secular split, that low view of the body. And the most common word was transformative. So this is this is actually a bit of a surprise to me, but Christians themselves are reading Love Thy Body and saying, yes, I'm learning how to talk to secular people, but I'm also rethinking my own understanding of Christianity. Right, yeah. No, absolutely. Now, I mean, before before we let uh, let that go uh, completely, like there there is a a biblical sense in which your uh, like your will imposes itself, or in which you strive for control and mastery of your body. And like the Apostle Paul writes that you know in his in his zeal for Christ and for the. Uh, the calling that he has, like he strives, he beats his body, he pushes himself. Um, so there's a, is, is, I guess, um, maybe the question is, is there, or what, what does a, a positive, what does a, a biblical, uh, view look like when it comes to, or what's the, what's the biblical view of control over your body? Right. So, the body is intrinsically good, but it's fallen. And you always have to keep those together, right? It's intrinsically good, but fallen. I think we have focused more on the fallen part historically in Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, the traditional revivalist message is, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. Right. The yeah. trouble with that is it, it communicates a message that your intrinsic identity is in your fallenness, in being a sinner, in being evil. And people get the sense that, you know, that Christianity teaches that we are worthless, that we're nothing. I talk to people who feel like that's the message they've gotten in church, you know, that my life is it means nothing. And we have to remember the Bible doesn't start with the fall. The Bible starts with creation. And, uh, and Schaefer used to, Francis Schaefer used to say this a lot, by the way, that the biblical message does not start with a fall. It starts with we are created in God's image and have great value and dignity. And in fact, we don't even understand the tragedy of sin if we don't start with creation. Because if we're really worth, worthless to begin with, well, it's like uh, if you have a plastic trinket and it gets broken, you toss it out without a second thought. Mm-hmm. But if a priceless heirloom or work of art is broken, that's a tragedy. Yeah. And so the reason sin is so, such, so tra- tra- uh, such a tragedy is precisely because we are made in God's image and have such value and dignity to start with. And so we actually lose our sense of sin if we don't start with creation. And so when Paul talks about um, self-control and self-denial, He's not talking about denying who we are as basic human beings made in God's image, our basic human nature. He's talking about denying sin. And he himself argues against asceticism, right? In, for, in uh, Colossians, That's right. Paul warns against asceticism. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Yeah. And he says, such harsh treatment of the body does not lead to real holiness. I tell you, Ryan, I've had students read this in my book and said, I have never 
heard any Christian talk about that verse before. <laughs> you know, they, Wait a minute, that's in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, it is. Paul says asceticism does not lead to holiness. We have totally overlooked that, <laughs> that, that verse. So, so what we need to say is that um, over against the secular view, we affirm the high value of the, and dignity of the body, but over against sort of the permissiveness of the secular view, we also say that we are sinners, we are fallen, and we don't just follow every impulse or desire that, happen, you know, that happens to arise within us. You know, we need to have an understanding of who we are and how to live in accord with the way God made us. That's fantastic. Um, Professor Piercy, I really appreciate your time. Uh, before, before I let you go, two questions just for, uh, for further reading. Um, first of all, uh, what's, uh, what's your website? Where can people get, to get a hold of Love Thy Body and your other work? Right. So I have a website that's just uh, very simple, nancypiercy.com. And, of course, you can always buy uh, Love Thy Body through the normal channels like Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble or your local Christian bookstore, and I also would like to recommend um, my—it's really mostly my husband's website, though I'm technically editor at large. But it's called the Piercy Report, and my husband Rick Piercy used to work on Capitol Hill. He was a Capitol Hill journalist, and he runs a website called the Piercy Report, in which he um, posts articles of interest to Christians to help them stay up. Stay up on issues like this. Stay up on issues that, uh, Ryan, when I speak in churches, one of the things that disappoints me is that many Christians are not staying up on these issues, and the, they've created a vacuum because they're not out there making the case for Christianity. Um, and when there's a vacuum, the secular views come, you know, they, they come right in to fill the vacuum. That's right. And so being educated on these issues is very important. That's right. That, uh, that leads really nicely and kind of answers my next question is that, uh, where uh, where would you recommend people read? Where would you recommend people look for uh, for more information on these subjects? Well, you know what people do once they leave school and they don't have teachers anymore mm-hmm. is that you read your footnotes. If you read Love Thy Body um, and you see something that interests you, you 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 check the footnotes and see what what books I used to to um, inform my own views on this issue. I'm actually teaching a course right now on my book on Love Thy Body, and what I do is I just took out my favorite sources that I used when I was researching, mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. students are reading those sources. So th- that's one of the best ways you can continue to educate yourself. I, I, I have wonderful articles and, and books that, that help me shape my ideas, and my students are loving it. <laughs> you know, they're really appreciating a chance to say, okay, okay, how can I go deeper? How can I understand this better? And so... To me, that's you know, that's how I work as a re- as a writer and researcher too. Myself, I just I find good things and I look at the footnotes and track the ideas back to their sources. Fantastic! That's uh, that's tr- uh, spoken like a true scholar. <laughs> I really appreciate that, uh, Professor Piercy. Uh, speaking for all of us here at the Ezra Institute, we're uh, we're excited to have you with us uh, for our conference in June. We're really looking forward to uh, to having you up here in uh, in Grimsby in the Niagara area. And I just uh, want to thank you again for your time. This has been a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much. You guys are doing great work at the Ezra Institute. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I used to live in Canada. So 
uh, it'll be fun to be with you, and it'll be fun to see Canada again. Yeah, I knew that. You were you were in Toronto for a little while, isn't that right? In Toronto. That's it. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, we'll uh, maybe we can uh, maybe we can take you to a ball game. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast of Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.